Hey, hey, it is time for the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm talking about Monster Kid Radio, and this is episode number 467. As always, I am your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook, and I'd love to welcome you to the show. Now, the music you're hearing this time around is something a little different. This is not from an album. This is actually from a YouTube video from the band The Destroyers. Now, we've had them on the show in the past. I actually really, really like this band, and they just posted on YouTube what they're calling the Reaper Madness Quarantine Rock. They are isolated, they are quarantined, and they are still putting together music. The video is quite cool. I'll make sure there's a link to it in the show notes. In fact, if you go to monsterkidradio.net, it will be embedded there for you to be able to see as well. They gave me the okay to play this music on the show, and of course, as always, I'll make sure that it's included in its entirety at the end of this episode. So there's a lot to go through in this episode. Of course, we've got Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland, and we're going over the results of the Frightful Four in the Monster Movie Madness Tournament 2020 with Steve Turek. We have a little bit of feedback and the main conversation. It is with podcast royalty. This guy has been contributing to podcasts in one way or another for years and even co-produces one himself. Now I'm talking about Rich Chamberlain and the movie that he brought to Monster Kid Radio is a very, very obscure film called The Beast from the Beginning of time. Now that title might sound familiar if you joined us for Social Distance Saturday last Saturday in the Twitch Monster Kid Radio stream because we showed it there. We wanted to give people kind of a heads up and maybe a taste, a sneak peek at what they might hear about on this week's episode of Monster Kid Radio. If you weren't there though, fear not because I'm playing it again for this weekend's Social Distance Saturday. So we'll talk about that here in a little bit. I think the only other thing to mention here is that when Steve and I talked about the Monster Movie Madness Tournament, we had several technical difficulties, and we did overcome them. But if the conversation doesn't sound as um, fluid as it normally does, it was because of our technical difficulties. Steve didn't do anything wrong. In fact, Steve did me a solid by recording our conversation on his end with his podcasting equipment, because, you know, he's a podcaster too and was able to send me that audio and, well, you get that conversation with Steve about the Frightful Four winners, and then we kind of go off the rails and talk a little bit about Conan the Destroyer, but not for too long, I promise. In fact, why don't you listen to it for yourself and let me know if it was too much. We'll play that right after this. as the mad master of the black arts, using every evil means in his desire to conquer the world. Tomorrow you will present Lucilius and his generals in my vestal virgins. Enslaved women did his bidding, 
soldiers were transformed into mindless puppets of the goddess of zombies. The goddess who punishes with fire and mummifies with the power of her evil third eye. War of the Zombies. Spectacle as big as the eye can perceive. Azir! Azir! The Romans are coming! What? is just the beginning of the wildest, weirdest adventure you've ever seen. I don't care for playing fair, I'm not the sharing kind. Now, anything goes. And everything grows. This is where the fun really began. I wonder if this makes everything grow. Hey, will you cut it out and leave it alone, huh? Freddy boy, if I want to try some of this stuff, just don't you try and stop me, understand? And try it, they did. are going to take over this town. Now, first of all, there's going to be a nine o'clock curfew for all adults. It's wild. It's way out. It's Village of the Giants. Whether you like it or not, little man, we're just going to have to show you what's good for you, that's all. Maybe we don't like your club either. You're in it anyway. See what happens when young rebels explode <clears throat> 30 feet tall. Village of the Giants. down to the frightful four i'm real curious to see how it turned out so far we are looking at i think the highest number of votes that we've gotten so far in this whole thing is that right steve that's right 117 votes right on now as before 
I did not look at any of the results. I don't know what we're going to see when or come out on top or whatever. I'm excited to talk about it with Steve. Steve, you've been running this uh, for us. I appreciate all of your support on it. I'm eager to see how it turned out. Well, it turned out kind of interesting. Um, one match was close and one match was a blowout. Oh. I think we'll start with the blowout first. Okay. Who were the two involved in the blowout? Gamera the Giant Monster and Godzilla Raids again. Okay. Who do you think won, knowing it's a blowout? Wow. You know, uh, I'm going to go with Godzilla. 71.8% of the vote went with Godzilla Raids again. So it w- it wasn't even close. It was never close the whole time. I mean, I, I would look at it periodically and I'd be like, eh, this one looks like it's going Godzilla's way. And that was before I ever voted. Wow. Well, the big question, though, that I have for you, Steve, is where did Godzilla Rides again come in at? Since that movie hasn't come out yet, it has it's not in the rankings, but I, I can't wait for the book. Okay, okay, gotcha. The book first. If you do the book, you know, then you got the movie rights. Oh, Derek, you'd be made. You, you'd be awesome. You could have it all take place in Oregon. Well, boy, are you suggesting that I create this book? Because there's no way Toho is going to let me get away with that. Well, you don't have to call it Godzilla. Just call it a giant lizard that breathes atomic breath. Right, okay. You think I could get away with calling it Gigantus? I think so. Okay, okay. So Godzilla raids again, and it is up against the winner of the other bout, which, uh, boy, is this one that was really close? It was closer. Um, Billy the Kid versus Dracula and the Giant Claw. Uh, the winner had 56.4% of the vote, so it, it, it was a lot closer than the Godzilla one. Wow. Who do you think won? Was it Billy the Kid versus Dracula or the Giant Claw? Man, um, I don't know on this one. I feel like in terms of... Just looking at what's had a stronger presence on Monster Kid Radio lately, the Giant Claws come up quite a bit. So I'm wondering if just for that reason, maybe the Giant Claw? The Giant Claw flies on. It won. Billy the Kid versus Dracula finally goes down because the Billy the Kid couldn't hurt the claw because of its like force field. That's around its body. Okay. That's what finally took him down. What can you do? I mean, it's it's just, it was the claw all the way. And now... The Titanic matchup, the Giant Claw, is against Godzilla Raids again. Wow. Who are you voting for, Derek? The Giant Claw or Godzilla Raids again? Now, listeners, remember, we're not talking about every Godzilla movie or Godzilla as a character. We're just talking about Godzilla Raids again. Only that movie. Wow. Um, I don't know. I really don't know. Um, What are you going to do? All right, this is the way I'm doing it. Looking at this tournament, the way we designed it, movies that most people do not like, you know, like in the general population, but we know are good movies. That was the theme for this tournament, correct? Yeah. I'm going Giant Claw all the way. I told you all, I've been saying this all the time. I'm going Giant Claw all the way. Go, go, Claw. Huh. Because really, if I'm putting a movie in just for pure entertainment just to watch and i'm only comparing these two movies i gotta go with the giant claw i mean i probably we're gonna stick that one in more than godzilla raids again it's a fun favorite what else could you ask for it a a crazy looking flying monster people taking it and and, and playing it straight going against that thing it's it's just the love i I gotta go the giant claw i know it's shocking a lot of people that i'm not picking godzilla but we're talking godzilla raids again against the giant claw it's movie to movie not character to character huh okay you gotta pick one derek and i think didn't you watch godzilla raids again recently you know what i'm i'm gonna go with giant claw as well 
Yeah, I think so. I'm hoping the claw can pull up. I think it would be an upset. Um, I know a lot of listeners have been putting different things down on um, the Monster Kid Radio Facebook site or commenting about how they want the claw to win, you know, over Billy the Kid, and everybody's rooting for the claw. And I'm, I'm the same way. I want the claw to do well also. You know, I want, I want to see it. And for this particular type of tournament, I think this is the movie that should be the winner. Yeah, I think I'm going to go there too. I have a lot of newfound respect for Godzilla Raids again. I think it's an interesting film with a lot to say at this point. But uh, like you said, when you're just kind of looking for a movie to put in to have some fun with, the giant claw doesn't require as much from you. And, and therefore, it's a little bit more fun. So yeah, I'm going to go there. The listeners, we both agree. Last week, Derek and I both agreed and we were right on both movies. Can we pull it out for a third time? Could this be another one of the signs of the apocalypse? I don't know. But I do know we need you guys to vote. Let's see if we can surpass 117 votes. That would be awesome if we were able to do that to surpass everything. Let's see. Again, the link is tinyurl.com slash monstermadness2020. We'll make sure there's a link to that in the show notes as well, of course. I'm excited to see how this turns out. I've been pretty pleased with it this time around. I think every once in a while uh, in last year's tournament, we didn't have a lot of votes for some of the rounds. But this time around, man, it has really surpassed all expectations. Like I said, next week, I'll talk about what next year's tournament's going to look like in design. You know, I won't know. I don't really know any of the movies that's going to go into it yet because I'll be taking some time, like six, seven months to pick those out, match them up and that kind of stuff. But uh, it's, I'm going to take a little bit of um, an interesting take on the tournament and kind of go along with the vibe that this tournament gave us. Well, we've talked a little bit here on the show about that. Uh, not too much in detail, but we've talked off mic as well quite a bit. I'm curious to see how you're going to put that together. But yeah, right now, let's focus on this and uh, see what we can do about getting more than 117 votes or something just as close to it as possible. Uh, and, and go from there. I'm real curious to see how the listeners are, are going to uh, to go. I know I'm voting for the claw. You're voting for the claw. Will the listeners vote for the claw? We'll see. It is as big as a battleship, and battleships are pretty impressive. So it's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it. I can. I think this one's going to cause a lot of listeners some pain to pick which <laughs> one they want to pick as the top movie. But I'm going for the upset. You're going for the upset. And we'll see how it all plays out with the listeners. Sounds good, man. We'll see how it turns out. Steve, I want to thank you for doing this uh, this whole time. Were there any real big surprises for you going through this, the previous rounds? Well, like I was telling you before, I was really shocked that Billy the Kid versus Dracula made it to the Final Four. I mean, that was, that was very surprising. And that Plan 9 did not make it to the Final Four. I think those are my two big... Uh, when I was looking at the brackets, you know, thinking, oh... Uh, I, had a, I had a feeling Giant Claw would get to the Final Four, and I was hoping it would get to the finals. Mm -hmm. And I thought Plan 9 would be in the Final Four also. So it's kind of interesting how people vote, you know, because you're trying to guess what, and like in this case, there's 117 voters. I'm trying to guess what 115 people are going to vote. My own family, who normally votes all as a block, some of them voted for Billy the Kid in this Final Four. Some of them voted for Gamera over Godzilla because they're just rating it movie against movie and what brought them fun. You can't predict what people are going to go with at that given moment. And a month later, they, they could go a totally different way. Interesting. Yeah, I was a little surprised um, that uh, Piatus Palancas didn't take it all, but I think you had something to do with that. Other than that, though, 
Oh, so speaking of making a mistake, um, what, what's your opinion now of Conan the Destroyer? Now that you whoa, had whoa, a- whoa, 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 whoa. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What did you just say? Speaking of you making mistakes about movies, what's your opinion? I, I'm sorry. You keep, bre- you keep breaking up on me. I'm sorry. What did you just say? <laughs> what's your current opinion of Conan the Destroyer? Considering that you might have been wrong Steve, a week ago. I'm not wrong. I haven't gone back to rewatch it yet, Steve. I got nothing for you, man. Now, do, do you like the, the film critic Roger Ebert? So yes, no question, Derek. I don't always agree with his opinions. I don't always agree with his uh, conclusions, but I do think he's a smart guy. Okay. Roger Ebert rated the film Conan the Destroyer three out of four stars and wrote that Conan the Destroyer is sillier, funnier, and more entertaining than the first film. I didn't come to Conan for silly and funny, though, so, you know, he may be right. He may be right. It's sillier and funnier, but I don't come to Conan looking for silly and funny. That's not what Conan is. How old were you when you saw Conan the Destroyer for the first time? I was pretty young. I saw it in theaters. I saw it in the movie theaters. I don't know if I could tell you exactly how old I was, but I think it was on an afternoon, not even like a movie channel, but like, like a USA Network kind of style. TV show or TV channel. All right. So you saw it on TV and not the big screen. Correct. But I haven't seen Conan on the big screen either. Both of them have always been on the small screen for me. I was just wondering, you know, I saw it when I was, let's see, I think this came out in 84. So I would have been 15 because it came out, I think, in the summer. Okay. And um, so I would have been 15 years old. And I, you know, of course, saw Conan the Barbarian, you know, and I was just like, oh, let's go see the Conan the Destroyer. And it has a great cast. Starts with Arnold Schwarzenegger. I mean, how can you go wrong from there? Um, you can go wrong. <laughs> you can go very, very wrong. <laughs> All right. It also had Sarah Douglas as the evil queen. Mm-hmm. Okay. Tracy Walter as the thief that was helping him. And we know Tracy Walter from, I believe, the Batman movie where he was the Joker's main henchman. I hated him in Conan the Destroyer. I hated him. He is um, perhaps my least favorite cast member in that entire film. That character I despise. That character does nothing but introduce comparisons to the previous film, Subatai, who is a much, much better character. This guy is nothing but comic relief and is a waste of my time. <laughs> well, that is... Jeez, Derek, just tell us how you feel about him. Poor guy. As an actor, he's fine. The character is not my cup of tea. Listeners, I'm sorry that Steve just hijacked this whole thing, turned this into a Conan the Destroyer for him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, no, I'm not a big fan of that guy. And I'll just drop one last actor as my ace in the hole. I swear, if you say Wilt Chamberlain. I said an actor. i think i think this is wilt's only film (laughs) yeah mako um it was great to see him return from the first film i think in the first film he's a stronger character i think that in this film he does get a little bit more kind of bumbling and a little bit more lighthearted. in the first film he felt truly dangerous and a real threat, whereas in this film he doesn't seem to be as um, rough or, 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 or gritty. And that's really what I come to Conan for. He's kind of a rough, grim and gritty kind of 
approach to fantasy storytelling. I think the big problem... But he's still good. I mean, he's still good. He's just not my guy oh, yeah, he, from the he, first you know, Every movie I've ever seen him in or TV show where he's guest starred in, he's always been a great character actor. It's never where it's his performance. It could be the writing, it could be other stuff, but it's never him. The movie itself, Conan the Bulbarian was originally rated R. Right? Conan the Destroyer, there was no PG-13 back then, but they wanted it to be PG. So they purposely toned down the violence and increased the humor. And I think that's where um, people that were fans of the Conan the Barbarian story or movie, when you take away violence, what you already introduced, and then you, you try to lessen it and add the more humorous elements, I think that was a, a misstep. But I look at it as it's, the film keeps moving. I think the only time there's really a stop in the film where there's a pacing issue is when they're doing a one, one of their rest scenes where um, Conan gets drunk and they're it, that whole scene is, is for humor. Maybe you could say a little bit of character development, but this, this film is not about character development. Right. But Derek, it's up to you. You can choose to edit this stuff out or leave it in there. You know what? We're going to consider this a sneak preview because I have a feeling you and I are going to come together on the Conan films on your podcast at some point this year. So, yeah, we'll consider this a sneak preview to the conversation where I'm right and Steve's wrong. Cool? And well, the deciding votes will be that I will have um, Ben and Michaela watch it and um, give review on it, too. At least one of them. You know, we have to have three of us, but hopefully all four of us can get together and either it'll be a split decision or um, it'll be three against one. But we'll do Conan the Barbarian first because we know we all like Conan the Barbarian. Right on. Awesome. And um, you have a good day. Unless you want me to tell you about what my next episode is. Why not? Our episode that went out yesterday with Rich Chamberlain guest hosting with myself and we did the seventh seal with the late, great Max von Sydow. So that movie's got Max Van Sydow, so does Conan the Barbarian. So there's another, you know, notch in the Conan the Barbarian's belt, just saying. So anyway, uh, Conan talk aside and, and Max Van Sydow aside and all that, Diecast Movie Reviews is where you're going to hear Steve and his family talking about movies. Most of the time they're right. What? <laughs> <laughs> First time in screen history, a special interval will be provided during the running of this picture for refunding your admission. If you're unable to stand the almost unbearable suspense, the almost paralyzing shock of homicidal. Homicide is your hobby. Uh, may I recommend a surgical knife for a nice, clean, quiet murder? I'm William Castle, and uh, uh, this wheelchair is just to rest my tired nerves after producing a picture like this one. We are so sure you will find it such a shocking and startling experience that we are offering a money-back guarantee when you come to see Homicidal. At the height of the suspense, there will be a fright break, an interval during which you can quiet your nerves. 
if you are too frightened to see the end of the picture, your full admission price will be refunded. Time to go downstairs now. Got a date to carve a corpse. In 1972, American TV networks canceled 12 TV shows for crimes they didn't commit. These shows were promptly forgotten by the public and faded into obscurity. Today, Chris Cooling researches these shows for a podcast. If there's a TV show that no one else remembers, and if you have earbuds, maybe you can listen to Forgotten TV. seems deserted. That monster's on the loose right here in town. Anybody catch sight of this thing? Well, a few kids playing in the street said he was 20 feet tall, covered with long hair and had great big teeth. Behind these empty streets, these windows shut in fear, lies the strange story of a young girl who knows the secret of the teenage monster. Fascinated by an evil demon, unable to control her sinister desires, she leads the monster to his prey, sacrificing an entire town to his insatiable lust for human life. I don't like to be stolen from her. I don't like to be laughed at. Oh, but it's not going to happen anymore. Because Charles won't let it. He'll kill anybody who does. Even you, I think. <gasps> Joe Martindale came in this morning, lost six of his blooded steers last night, and a rider. The steers had their throats torn out, and the rider, Bill Begley, was beat to death. It's a thing again. I'll meet you back at the office. I'm gonna have to go, Ruth. You stay in town. That thing's loose on the range again, not 15 miles from your mind. What was it? It was that thing. Harry and horrible. Oh, it's awful. Yeah. I saw him, the monster. He ran away from this barn carrying the girl. A posse in panic, not knowing what they'll find. Man, beast, or demon from another world as they pursue the loathsome killing thing they call the teenage monster. You're in the feedback section of the show, and we received a message from John Scott. He's been on the show before. It's been way too long, actually. I should have him back on. Anyway, John sent me a message on Facebook saying, great job covering one of my chief cinematic guilty pleasures. He's referring to Dracula versus Frankenstein. Among other topics mentioned within that running time, Famous Monsters of Filmland number 89 was the first ever issue of the magazine I bought. I expect you both will keep up the good work. So Beast Witches, Better Tomorrow's John. Famous Monsters of Filmland was the one that featured Dracula versus Frankenstein as its cover story. And boy, that's a cool cover. That's so cool. And that movie is so cool. John, thanks for writing in and giving us your support regarding that film. I really do hope people give it a, a second chance. I know it's got a lot of problems, but really when you think about how hard Lon Chaney worked to make that movie as good as any other movie that he ever worked on, I think it really deserves a little extra 
attention. John, thanks for sending me a message on Facebook. Listeners, you can send me a message on Facebook by going to the Monster Kid Radio page or group and just send me a message that way. Or if you want to call in, you can call and leave us a voicemail at 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. Or you can send us an email or an audio file at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. Hello, this is Rod Barnett, the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast about eclectic film from across the decade. On The Bloody Pit, we've covered Godzilla movies, Doctor Who movies starring Peter Cushing, The Outer Limits, Fu Manchu, Doc Savage, old radio shows, my favorite movies of all time, a Lucio Fulci film or two, 1970s science fiction movies, and a long series on the films of Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti. So if you're curious to learn a little bit about some of the stranger areas of cult film and television, join me and my rotating group of co-hosts on The Bloody Pit. You might even learn something about Coffin Joe. And that's scary, people. Very scary. Now, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and Seven Arts present the most spectacular woman in the world. She, the immortal goddess whose passion defies time. She, whose cruelty defies description. She, who waits for one man to drown the fires of longing burned within her for 20 centuries. And across the desert of lost souls, over the mountains of the moon, to the venal city of Kuma, at last he came to bathe with her in the flame of eternal life. She who must be obeyed, she who must be feared, she condemning thousands to tortures beyond your wildest imagination, frolicking in pleasures beyond your strangest dreams. She, overpowering adventure in color. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. This week we are going to continue our issue-by-issue examination of films covered with article-length features in Famous Monsters. We are up to issue 16 from March of 1962. As we look over the contents, we see an article on the psychology of horror films by Robert Block, who said FM was just for kids, a look at makeup artist Dick Smith, a new contest, and the regular departments. The only film to get article-length coverage is the Canadian 3D shocker, The Mask. Put the mask on now. It is a six-page photo spread loaded with 15 images. It started with this brief introduction. Filmed on location, inside the mind of a madman. The thriller that dares to dive through three dimensions inside the brain of a man on fire with fear. Here's the entire text of the article. Confucius, the Chinese philosopher whom so many ape, has said one picture worth 10,000 words. In this pictorial coverage of the mask we have chosen instead of verbiage to give you the photographic equivalent of 15,000 words. Fabulous makeups and special effects are the genius of Slavo Forkovich, Herman Townsley, and David Balu, a Warner Brothers release of a Rothman-Taylor production. 
This article was later reprinted in FM 93, where I first saw it. The creepy images were stuck in my mind till I finally saw the film not too long ago while deep in my 50s. It's not bad. You should add it to your list, Derek. Now, that would be a short segment, so let's take a look at issue 17. Let's see. There's the continuation of the Robert Block article, a feature on Glenn Strange and some of the regular features. The only movie given article length coverage is the picture of Dorian Gray. The article is another photo spread showing how makeup artist Dick Smith made the final decomposed vision of Mr. Gray. Quite gruesome. The article is six pages long with 11 photos, all showing different stages of the sculpt of the villain's frightful end. Here is the brief text introduction. It has been 17 years since MGM's masterful production of Oscar Wilde's classic novel of the disintegration of Dorian Gray. Horror fans of that day, 1945, wondered if they had seen the ultimate when actor Herb Hatfield was reduced in the end to a most petrifying mass of technicolor horror, almost unrecognizable as something once human. But when TV producer David Susskind saw fit to revive the story of Dorian Gray late last year, he may have been responsible for televising to the world a visage more terrifying at last than that of the legendary Phantom of the Opera. This version of Dorian Gray was broadcast in December of 1961 on the CBS program Golden Showcase. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next time. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. Kenny, man, that was a great segment, especially because I really, really like the movie The Mask. I, just a phenomenal film. I had a chance to see that for the first time on the big screen. I don't think it was this past time. It was a couple of years ago with Dominique and Chris McMillan here in town. And wow, it was really cool. And it was in 3D as well, at least when you was supposed to be in 3D. It was in 3D. It was very cool. And you know what? I got real curious about the picture of Dorian Gray, the 1961 adaptation of the film. And... You're holding out on us, man. Jonathan Fred was in that as well. So it didn't just have Dick Smith's involvement. He had Barnabas involved somehow as well. And I was so excited to find that out. You know what we're going to do? We're going to show this version of the picture of Dorian Gray during the ghost of Social Distance Saturday this weekend. I mean, come on. Jonathan Frid, Susan Oliver is in it. The thing's just packed with star talent, people that I'm familiar with, people that have contributed so much to my monster kiddom and fandom of Star Trek even, too, because Susan Oliver, she was an Orion slave girl dancer in the original Star Trek. So, I mean, come on. I can't wait to share this with everybody during Social Distance Saturday. And you can thank Kenny for making it happen. Kenny, thanks for the segment, and thanks for the inspiration. Put the mask on now. Put the mask on now. No, ladies and gentlemen, there is nothing wrong with the projection. But you can't share the shock until you have the miracle movie mask. At showings of this motion picture, each patron will receive his own miracle movie mask. Then, but let's watch the scene again. Then you will lift your mask as he lifts his, and you will look through it with him into the weirdest nightmare world that man has ever dreamed or the screen has ever dared show. The new realm of horror that can only be seen through the mask. Here to tell you more is the supreme authority on all things weird. 
initiate of the strange and mysterious, the world's greatest connoisseur and collector of masks, Mr. Jim Moran. I have seen wonders. I've traveled to the remotest corners of the globe, to dead cities, through savage jungles, to the inner sanctums of esoteric cults, the temples of exotic rituals, to tombs and caverns and palaces. The result, the most comprehensive collection of masks in the world. Some are works of art, some are astounding and horrifying, but nowhere in all my travels have I found a mask so absolutely remarkable as this mask, the Miracle Movie Fright Mask, the mask that you will be invited to put on when you see the motion picture called The Mask. This is the mask that will open your eyes to such things as man has never dared imagine. The mask that will make you part of the sensations of the most staggering experience of your life. But be warned, the things that you will see when you put on this mask will surely take you to the very limits of your nerves and to the very boundary line of sanity. <laughs> Enjoy movies like Carnival of Souls, The Mole People, Black Sunday, and The Tingler. Do you find yourself late at night reading magazines such as Film Max, Chiller Theater, or Monster Bash? Do you love vintage television programs like Sky King, Outer Limits, and The Time Tunnel? Do you find yourself surfing the net looking for the next monster movie festival or expo? Do you enjoy hearing anecdotes, cinematic details, and unusual insights into some of your favorite movies? If you answered yes to any of the above, tune in to BMovieCast at BMovieCast.com. A house of high fashion, a dazzling whirl of elegance, of exotic, extravagant beauties. An adventurous journey into the devastating allure of the most sophisticated women and their intimate secrets. Suddenly, these lace curtains ignite a drama that will lacerate your emotions. Blood and black lace. <coughs> who is this shrouded, sadistic, sordid fiend who maims and murders? Why this bloodthirsty orgy, this holocaust of lives? <coughs> Blood and black lace in bleeding color. For shattering, shivering, shocking experience. I can't help it, listeners. I just can't help it. Every time I think about this guy, the first thing that comes to my mind is it's Richard from Wichita, although I know that he hasn't been in Wichita in a long, long time. Rich Chamberlain, <laughs> how you doing, man? I am doing good. You know, I get that all the time. Richard from Wichita, that sticks with me. But Richard from Kansas City just doesn't roll off the off the tongue as easy. Um, so yeah, I'm doing great. Uh, I'm so happy to be back. It's been a while. And, Too long. Uh, Too long. You know, to talk about this uh, Academy Award 
award-winning film that we're going to talk about today is just a, it was too good of an opportunity to pass up. Uh, Oh, what Academy was that? Because that's... <laughs> <laughs> now, I was going to say, I understand the Richard from Wichita thing because I still have people out there that call me Brother D, so I totally get it. You know, I do every once in a while just to, to, to get it to you. I was like, Brother D. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. You probably get I, I know, and I shouldn't do that because I know the reaction I get sometimes to myself. And I was like, ah, Richard from Wichita. No, haven't been there in six years now, believe it or not. So, Oh, man. Ghosts of podcast past. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. No, so we're going to talk about this movie that, that Rich said was um, Academy Award winning. And then my response and the laughter and all that. It's, it's not that bad of a film. It's actually a fun little movie that I will forever associate with Rich. I, I just I can't because he's the one that introduced me and this podcasting community that I was part of years ago to this film. There's a siren outside. <laughs> I was going to say the siren. I was like, I was worried about sounds on my end. Yeah, you know, this movie, it holds a, a really close place in my heart for so many reasons. The biggest, though, is that without this movie, this this little forgotten beast from the beginning of time, I wouldn't be sitting here with you now. And I've talked about this, you know, before on, on you know, the Classic Horrors Club podcast. But quite honestly, I mean, this movie is what, led to me becoming a guest on uh, the B-Movie cast with Vince Rotolo. I got a copy of this movie uh, that I remembered from childhood, and I shared it with several people, you know, including you. You know, as soon as Vince got the copy of it, he was like, let's talk about this on the show. And I had been leaving voicemails on the show for quite a while. But then, you know, Vince said, yeah, let's come on, you know, have you come on and we'll do it. And then before we even recorded, then I recorded the uh, Confessions of an Opium Eater with uh, Vincent Price. We recorded a review on that and then did uh, The Beast in the Beginning of Time. It led to several other appearances. That led to me writing an article for Nick Brown's uh, B-Movie Man website, which uh, then led to me having that article put into the Basement Subletter of Horror magazine, put together by Joel Sanderson, because he reached out after reading it. And then it just kind of just, you know, the domino effect, little things kind of led from one to the other, to being on Dread Media with uh, Des Reddick and doing some segments for his show. By that point, I had launched my my own blog, uh, monstermoviekid.wordpress.com, shameless plug. And... Uh, <laughs> and um, yeah, then, you know, Classic Horrors Club with Jeff Owen. So it's just all these little pieces. And that very first domino was being on the B-Movie cast with Vince Rotolo and then talking about the beast in the beginning of time. So this movie, this random flick from 1965 that, you know, is still not very well known. I think if you know it, you probably have talked to me <laughs> at some point, you know, and, and this movie that's been, you know, telecast on television, you know, I don't know how many times it's been on TV because Joel Sanderson did a show for a while. Basement Subletter 4 was also a, a television show. And uh, he was a horror host um, and still is, actually. He's, he's kind of reviving it again. And he had the movie on his show. And um, so it would have aired uh, in multiple markets on television. But it didn't get its theatrical debut until 40 years after its release. So again, the, the number of people who are aware of this or have seen it are small. Hopefully, for those who maybe weren't into podcasting, 
back when this was on the B-Movie cast. Uh, hopefully they're going to learn something today as we, we talk about this film that I think you and I both agree it, it deserves more love than it gets. It, it's not an Academy Award-winning film. It's a, you know, a film that would certainly be worthy of one of those Mill Creek sets that they used to put out. It was certainly more than worthy of that. I think when you, you've got films like The Horror of Spider Island getting a Blu-ray release from Severin, yeah, this is a movie that <laughs> should could easily be up to those standards. Yeah, some boutique label somewhere picking it up, but I don't even know what exists of this movie anymore. Is there a film print somewhere or or what? Because all that's really out there right now are some pretty low-budget transfers. So it's it's a little difficult to pick up some of the details, but despite all that, I still feel like there's a lot of love that's coming through here. It's one of these cases that really exemplifies what's really cool about regional filmmaking. I love the idea of regional filmmaking where you've got the small pocket of people, creative people outside of Hollywood making their own genre film, whether you're a Don Doler or in this case, a Tom Leahy, you've got people making movies like this outside and removed from the Hollywood system doing their own thing. I mean, the evil dead was, I would consider a regional film. And I love that. And to stumble across something like this, that, you know, a good friend of mine has a personal connection to, it just kind of elevates it and makes it even more special for me. Yeah, absolutely. I think that kind of going back to, to your question about what exists of this film, unfortunately, I, I don't think that there's a good print out there. I think I've seen some screenshots going back to Horrors of Spider Island, which is not a good movie. I've seen it a long time ago, and it's not horrible, but it's, it's not uh, a film that I would ever think would make a, a Blu-ray release out of it. But even that looks good, and and there's a good print, you know, out there for even some of the worst films, except for this one. And the fact that a print even exists, I think, is the, the is really the miracle because this was made on a shoestring budget in Wichita, Kansas, in 1965, and never got released. Uh, there was hopes that it would, but after that, it it sat, you know, and the only time it it would uh, be shown is is the one copy of the film that Tom Leahy had, the man behind the movie. He would show it at, at parties as a joke because, of course, there were a lot of local personalities. There's no big-name actors in this movie at all. Tom Leahy is, is the most well-known because he did some things outside of this film, especially being one of the very first horror hosts in the late 1950s, he gets recognized for his work as the, well, his character name was the host of the show was called Nightmare in 1958. And it was one of the local horror hosts who were created to show the shock theater packages. So he gets recognized for that probably more than he does for this movie. But he made this movie and it sat and he brought it out as a joke to, to you know, kind of just rib the other local people who were in it. And it sat for 15 years before it even saw the light of day beyond, you know, the occasional party. And it was played on television. And uh, I think it was 1980 or 81. I've seen some different things on that. And I believe it was 1980. But I've also seen a newspaper article that had it uh, dated 1981. So I think I originally said it was 1980. But I'm beginning to question that it may have been 81. But in any case, it sat. For many, many years before it was played on television. And even then, it was played on Channel 3 in, in Wichita, and it was uh, the NBC affiliate, and it was done as a joke 
because it had the local people that were still alive, and, and some of them had passed by that point, but some of most of them were still alive. It was just kind of done as a rib, a Halloween trick or treat, so to speak. Um, I don't think Tom realized the love and affection for this movie until the 40th anniversary screening, which was done at the Orpheum Theater in Wichita. Uh, I was in attendance. Tom was there along with uh, Dick Wellsbacher. He's the actor who played the uh, archaeologist Maury. You know, I think we've lost still uh, Dick Wellsbacher a few years ago now, but he was a, a local Wichita State University professor. You know, this movie was just this little thing he did in the past, but he was there in attendance, and uh, neither one of them really grasped until some people were asking, hey, why isn't this on DVD? How can we see this? And Tom would always say, you know, oh, who wants a copy of this? Nobody wants this. You know, this is just a joke. He was almost embarrassed by it. And I just don't think that he he ever fully understood that there would be people interested in seeing this, despite the fact that he was a horror host and, and would show some movies that were on the same level as this. He, he never really fully understood the love for it. And I think that's why it never even in, in the early days of DVD, when Tom was still alive, it never really saw any type of release. And I think that's unfortunate. You know, now, of course, the, the film copy sits in the uh, Kansas Historical Society. I think that's the only print, to the best of my knowledge, that, that's there other than the, the DVD copies that are floating. And depending on, on which version you're watching, and they're on YouTube and out there on archive.org, there is a version that was recorded off-air from the Channel 3 broadcast. And then there is a, uh, a copy that I believe is a copy from the, the actual print itself. But there, you know, there's not really any difference between the two. It's unfortunately not uh, in high definition. And as you said, there are some things that you just can't quite make out in the film. And for me, that kind of just adds to it a little bit. You know, it's just kind of like there's this unique movie that you're watching it's kind of like I, I tend to like uh i know you're a big star trek fan i like watching the the star trek episodes classic star trek without the new cgi effects that they put in i like watching those old cheesy 1960s effects because that's what i watched for decades growing up and it, sure. it makes yeah it's it makes me yeah i mean it's kind of like I like listening to vinyl records, and I like the occasional pop or, or something. That, to me, adds a little bit of character to it. And it, and it tells me that, yeah, this, how many times has this record been played? You know, there's, there's some love that's been seen. If you watch a film, an old film strip, and it's got some wear and tear in it, to me, that says, this movie's been played. And it's been played multiple <laughs> times. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and it's, you know, and, you know, how many people have seen it? I think that when I listen to vinyl records, you know, I look at if there's a name on it or something, I, I will actually go on onto uh, Google and try to see, you know, who this person was. And I've actually found sometimes that, you know, I bought some records down in Oklahoma City and found that who the guy was and when he passed away. And, and it to me adds a little bit of history to what I'm holding in my hands. It's like you know, this was at one time a valued piece of this guy's collection. And now I'm listening to the same music that he listened to. I kind of feel that way with film as well. So uh, I'd love to see a better print of this. I don't think it's going to happen. 
So I just enjoy what we have and, and think about the history behind it and, and just how many people have actually seen this very same print that I have. And it's, uh, I don't know, it adds some character to it. Yeah, and I don't even know if a real trant or a print actually exists in the uh, as a historical society because I'm looking at their website right now, and their listing for what's actually in the Tom Leahy collection does not include this. It does include a 16 millimeter film of the Green Hell from the Void. It, it exists as a short film, but my understanding is that it was supposed to be a longer thing that he was going to do that just never got finished. Unless this movie is like on the demo tape they have there or whatever, I. This is probably the best we're ever going to have. And that's, you know, again, that's that's okay. That's part of it. Like you said, it gives us a little bit of history. And I was kind of giggling here. I had myself on mute while you were talking about how you like hearing the little pops or whatever. I don't know if it does anything for anybody but me. But occasionally when I'm doing these, like the social distance Saturday screenings that I'm doing now, I will put in the sound of like film pops or whatever between ah. trailers. <laughs> Between the trailers or between the tra trailer and the yeah. film, just to kind of have that transition, because to me, that's part of the experience. And it does mean a little extra work for me. And like I said, I'm probably the only person who really enjoys that or, or even notices that. But yeah, there's just something about it that makes it feel more historic. Uh, like like it's, it's been used, it's been enjoyed by somebody else. And now you're part of that club. Totally agree with you, man. Totally agree with what, what you're saying there. I, you know, I, I saw a print of uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, a film print, at uh, Alamo Draft House several years ago now. And that's a beyond a quirky movie to begin with. Um, <laughs> the, the experience was enhanced by the fact that Joe Bob was there. Joe Bob Briggs was actually introducing it. And this was before his revival. So he was going around introducing movies at, at Alamo Draft House, and that just enhanced it. But then when the film started... It was a fairly worn print, and uh, yeah, it's just kind of like, you know what? This is the kind of movie that deserves a little bit of dirt and grime to go with it to add some you know, history to it. Case in point, I also saw Lucio Fulci's Zombie, the new restored version, in 4K at a local theater. Jeff Owens was there with me, and he had the same experience as I did. It was too clean. That movie is another movie that I think doesn't necessarily need the sharpest print out there. A little bit of dirt and grime to that movie enhances it. And the restoration was such that you could you could so clearly see the difference between the makeup and very rough lines and where, you know, flesh and makeup, you know. Sure. Yeah, the blends. Yeah, yeah, right. that's, yeah that's, that's what I was looking for. Yeah, and that's, I... Uh, I have the same experience when I've seen Star Trek on Blu-ray, the classic episodes. You see a lot of things that you didn't see before and you really weren't supposed to see. You see the beads of sweat on them like like never before because it's hot on the set. A lot of that stuff you don't see, obviously, in modern HD programming. But you saw it in 1960s, but you didn't, right? Because we didn't have high definition, so those things weren't seen on television sets and I didn't see them all the years growing up watching those episodes. But now the colors pop and some of the, the images look sharper than ever before. But you see some of those things that you just weren't supposed to see, like the heavy blue eyeshadow that they put on Sulu and Spock in some of those early episodes. That really pops in, in the modern Blu-ray and you're not really supposed to see that as much. So for me, I, I like character in, in certain movies. I think uh, 
I don't always do the the automatic high definition Blu-ray upgrade when a movie comes out. I have to think about it. I think it was the same case was like with the White Zombie several years ago when that came out. They cleaned it up too much. They softened it up too much, and it was missing too much grain. Yeah, it loses the texture. That yes, and. You know, I go back and forth on it because I think about when these films were first released, the prints were pristine. They weren't beat up. They hadn't been fed through a thousand different projectors and manhandled by a thousand different projectionists, you know. So they they were in better shape than what we're getting now. So I imagine the audiences saw them a little bit better. But like you said, you clean it up too much and then it starts to look unnatural. Um, You do a lot of the digital noise reduction and the, the DNR and it makes it look too smooth, like you said, kind of plasticky almost. And that's certainly not how original audiences saw these movies. So why am I watching it this way? I think there's a fine line. I'm curious, listeners, we've not really talked too much about this on the show. Too much. I mean, it's come up for once in a while. But I'm real curious to hear what the listeners think when it comes to restoring these classic films. I think sometimes, like, Universal did a great job with their Dracula. I think that cleanup was great. But then, like you said, you've got the... Was it Kino that did that version of White Zombie? I think so, yeah. Yeah, and it just, it, too smooth. You lose something. Uh, and I'm not saying, you know, that I'm against any high-definition upgrade because there's sometimes it's absolutely night and day. I, I think of some of the silent film classics like Hunchback of Notre Dame, Phantom of the Opera. Sure, uh, yeah. Doc, Dr. Uh, Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I mean, those were public domain, and, and there's so many really bad prints out there. And then you see a good, crisp, clear print, and you can't go back to watching the really rough copies that were available for so many years. Uh, here locally, we we have the Kaufman Center, which does silent films for Halloween every year. And they bring in a, a well-known organist who does this amazing uh, original score that she actually kind of creates on the fly as the movie is playing. She has an idea of where she's going to go. But a lot of it is just kind of off the cuff, and it is an absolutely amazing experience. And they're showing the best crystal clear print of those films, and it looks fabulous on the big screen. I'm trying to think, and it was maybe Nosferatu that um, I was kind of curious. I wanted to just compare, you know, is it that much better than what I had? And I realized that what I had was the uh, alpha video version of Nosferatu. Oh, no. <laughs> Which, I'm not sure you can get worse than that. And when I got yeah. it, you know, early days of DVD, yeah, that's what was available. And it made me realize that I do have to upgrade some of my silent films. I see them just about every other year here in, in Kansas City, but if that ever was to stop, I'm definitely going to need to get some. I think Kino is the one that puts out a lot of them. So in a case like that, absolutely you need to do the upgrade i think it just depends on on what they do to the film and how much they mess with it there's there's a line that you need to not cross and i think they they cross that with white zombie definitely without alpha video would josh kennedy have his movies out there i don't know but so i mean they do some good things but yeah these these public domain outfits man the the transfers can be pretty beat up and man i don't know it's a fine line again i'd like to hear the listeners think you know what do you prefer you know I want to talk about this movie. I want to talk about what you're up to. But there's something we got to do first, sir. The Classic Five! I, you know, I'm ready. All I'm right. ready. Right on. So for listeners who don't know, The Classic Five is a game that we play here on the show every time we have somebody on, or at least every time I remember. We try to play around of this card game. It is a this or that. Which movie do you prefer? Rapid fire style question and answer game. There are no wrong answers. 
Rich, are you ready to play? Yes, sir. All right, here we go. Fire away. All right, card number one right off the top. Oh, who's your favorite classic Scream Queen? Oh, gosh. I'm going to go with the one that just pops right off the top of my head. And I don't know if this would be a Scream Queen, but I'm, I'm thinking Elsa Lanchester in, oh, in Pride of Frankenstein. Okay. Yeah, she didn't do a lot, but man, what she did. Yeah, I mean, that's just so iconic, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and that, that one image of her. So uh, I'll go with that. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, she's like in what Bride of Frankenstein for less than five minutes, but she made such an impact. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. Right on. All right, cool. Card number two. Oh, how are you on your kaiju? I'm good. Okay. I'm good. Don't ask me to pronounce any words, but I'm good. <laughs> All right, how about this then? Card number two, it's from the kaiju expansion. If you could have a kaiju as a pet, which one would it be? <laughs> oh, wow. Um, I'd go with, you know... Various names I know, but but Minya, son of Godzilla, Tadzilla, as I've heard him referred to a time or two. Really? Okay. I I think as a pet, I think he'd be cute, right? He'd just be this. I could just see him <laughs> being this cute, cuddly thing that you'd sit and watch monster movies with. Do I want him? <laughs> Do I want him in my monster movie? No, because he annoys the heck out of me. But. Uh, as a pet, I think he'd be cute. So I'm going to go with Tadzilla. <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. All right, card number three. Who's your favorite actress to appear in a Hammer film? Oh, gosh. I'm going to go with Veronica Carlson. That's a tough one because there's there's a lot of good actresses. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's the – I just – there's something about her. She has and, – and, and honestly – this is probably heavily influenced just by who she is today. She is such a class act. When she's at Monster Bash, as I've heard people say, she holds court, right? But she genuinely wants to to have connections with the fans. And I'm not saying that any of the others don't, but I'm saying that she genuinely enjoys, you can see that just her, by her mannerisms and stuff, she enjoys sitting down and having a conversation and enjoys this recognition that she's getting later in life for these, you know, again, as an actress, random films that she did, you know, decades ago and probably thought, Hey, this is, I'm done with this. I'm going to move forward and do something else. And here she is decades later getting recognized for this work. And I just, to me, little things like that will always kind of add to, to my thoughts about their past work. You know what? She's amazing. She is one of my favorite people to have met at monster bash. Uh, and she puts up with all of us fanboys, you know, kind of gathering around her, holding court, you know, like you said, incredibly patient with all of us just kind of fawning over her. Oh, absolutely. She is so cool. She is so cool. All right. What was that? That was card number three, right? Okay. Card number four. <laughs> Man, I was just talking about this with Steve Turek on last week's episode about the giant claw. And this is a giant claw question. The giant claw or reptilicus? I'm going to go giant claw. That movie... <laughs> gets so much flack and with good reason but it could have been so much more and i just there's so much background story when you hear about you know the actors kind of scrunching in the back seat you know at the premiere not realizing how bad this was going to look i love that movie more than i should and i think as we all (laughs) as we all say there's no no guilty pleasures right Um, exactly i that movie is i reptilicus is good i enjoy it Giant Claw for me is just, just another level above, and, and it's uh, so cheesy, so bad. I love it. I just got Mara Corday, and she's just phenomenal. And yeah, yeah, 
Natalia yeah. Claw. All right. What's your, oh, okay. This is from the universal side of things. What's your favorite Karloff Lugosi universal collaboration? Oh gosh. Black Cat. Black Cat. Yeah. Was, they did a lot of good work, uh, but nothing in my mind tops the Black Cat. That was amazing. I always go between the Black Cat or Son of Frankenstein, but I think Black Cat is, is a film that I prefer more. So I always go there. I know there's a lot said about the rivalry and all that other stuff, but when they were on screen together, they were magic. Yeah, I think was fun. Son of Frankenstein, for me, that's not Karloff's best performance True. monster. True. Um, mm-hmm. And although I think Lugosi does fantastic in that, to me, uh, that Karloff's performance, he's secondary in that film. I love the movie, but he, you know, he's definitely overshadowed by, I think, Lugosi overshadows him in that film, and certainly uh, Basil Rathbone does. Whereas in The Black Cat, he and Lugosi are on equal footing in that film. I mean, they're going toe-to-toe against each other in, in a way that they never do in any other film, really. So that, that movie deserves all the love that it gets. There we go. Well, that is the classic five. How do you feel, Rich? How do you think you did? I think I did good. I love it. I love that. So that's uh, you know one of my favorite parts of the show, honestly. Well, I know I said there's no winners or losers or wrong answers or whatever, but Rich, you win. You won the Classic Five. and (laughs) Your prize is that you get to stay on the show and talk some more about this Academy Award winning. I will. (laughs) I can't even. I can't notice a straight face. (laughs) (laughs) That's a prize I will take and, and, uh, and cherish and put it up on my mantle with honor. So we talked a little bit about who made this film tom Leahy. he was a, a radio guy a tv guy he was a horror host like you said he did the host on rodney where he was the host and that had two runs my understanding is that it once in the late 50s and then he brought it back again uh later in the 60s at one point yeah it actually had three runs oh really okay he brought it back again in 1990 Oh, great. Wow. The uh, Wichita was way behind the times in regards to getting a UHF station. We didn't get our first UHF station in Wichita until I think it was 1986. And uh, Tom came back. He recreated, initially recreated his major Astro character, which is uh, a character he did in the 60s and 70s, kind of a spaceman and space control and He'd tune in his television. He was a kiddie show host. He would introduce cartoons and Gilligan's Island and stuff like that. He brought that back in uh, in the late 80s. And then he brought the host back. In, I think it ran from 90 to maybe as late as 92. And uh, I've actually got a few episodes from that run. It played on Friday nights. And I think he played the character for the last time on a television commercial for a haunted house sometime in the mid-90s. He resurrected the character one more time. He was well-known, yeah, for decades playing that character. Huh. I was just thinking, you know, they do that Horror Host Hall of Fame every year. Is he in it? Yes, he is. Yeah. He is in the Horror Host Hall of Fame? Good, good. That's why I said I think he's more remembered, I think, for for being uh, the host of Nightmare, the show that was the name of the show, than he is, I think, for, you know, this movie or even... The other film he did, King Kung Fu, in 1976. Well, he was in that, yeah. yeah. And uh, earlier we said he was in the Horror Host Hall of Fame. He's also in the Kansas Area Broadcasters Hall of Fame. He knew his stuff. He was the guy. You know, he did it all. He took everything very serious. I mean, he, he did take the initial production of this film serious. And he took his character of the host very serious. 
uh, Major Astro was was I mean he was he'd go on parades and and public appearances and stuff and he and he loved it and so he he never took anything for granted and and never downplayed anything that he did other than the beast you know after the fact it just he was kind of embarrassed by it but even the fact that it didn't get released it didn't deter him because you mentioned Green Hell from the Void he did that was an attempt at a pilot for a television series. And that was done in 68. Not much of it exists, I think. Gosh, is it maybe 10, 15 minutes? I don't, I'm not even sure if it's yeah, that it's much. Super short, super short. But it gives you a taste. Special effects are a little better in that one, just three years later, but it was never finished. You know, the fact that that's even out for the uh, public to see on archive.org we keep mentioning Joel Sanderson. He's got a, a page kind of within archive.org, Basement Silver of Horror. He's uploading a lot of, of content on there, including that little snippet. You're the one responsible for that because you did the research. You you found that it was sitting there at the Kansas Historical Society. So uh, I, th- I think he even put my name in the credits somewhere, but I had absolutely very little to do with any of that. I was, but yeah, you I'm, know, I'm glad we found it, though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's out there. And, and again, it's it's not a complete film, but it gives you a taste, you know, of, of what uh, that Tom was still interested in filmmaking, at least in 68. And I think, you know, at some point after that, he just went a different direction and, and uh, never kind of looked back at making another film again. But he still loved his television and, and was well known in, in Wichita for decades. I know that today you have horror hosts that have made movies of their own as well. You know, you got Marlene and Midnight and, and what they do over at Midnight Martha Liam, they've done at least one film and have a couple of others in various stages of posts, I believe. Larry, Dr. Gang Green, has done a lot of film stuff. I mean, he won an award for a short film that he wrote that was in the Lovecraft Film Festival. So I know a handful of them have done films. Is Tom Leahy the first horror host to actually sit down and say, hey, I'm going to make a movie? Well, gosh, 1965, I mean, that's the early days of, of Horror House. I mean, Horror yeah. House, aside from uh, Vampira, yes. Vampira and, and probably uh, Zachary, Zachary, but... Yeah, you know, that's going back, I mean, late 50s is when everything kind of exploded. So I'd have to say yes, I mean, because huh. mo- most Horror Hosts back then, I mean, they were working with maybe a $2 budget if they were lucky from their local TV studio. And so, which essentially, you know, he was working with a very limited budget. He had a, a friend. That's where the kind of the, the connection was, is that the chance of maybe taking the film out to someone in Hollywood and, and maybe getting this film released, that was the hope initially. And uh, unfortunately that never happened. The movie was completed, but then it, it, it never made it out to Hollywood. The, uh, and I, I don't know the, the, the friend's name or who was, I don't think he was, directly involved with uh, anything on screen but uh, he ended up going out to hollywood himself and ended up working i think it was white world of sports and did some work like that so you know that connection immediately was severed when he went out to hollywood and so the movie just kind of sat in the midwest i can't think of anyone else of that time period that would have even had the money to to make a film could be i mean it could there could be somebody something sitting in somebody's vault you know that uh that hasn't seen the light of day, just like this movie has barely seen the light of day. Huh. Well, you know, when you run out of movies to show, I guess you just go out and make your own and <laughs> show it on your <laughs> horror host program. Not that that's what happened here, although 
man, it would have been cool if it did, because then this would probably have a little bit more notoriety and, and more accessibility. Uh, Tom Leahy is using a pseudonym in most of his uh, credits in the film. Uh, it's what, I forget the name they put under for the director, but it's actually Tom Leahy doing the direction. And I'm, I'm not, I think, doesn't he play the monster too at the end? He does. He, he wrote produced, directed, and starred. I think his on-screen credit was Nelson Strong. There you go, yeah, which is a great name. It is, it is. But yes, he, he played the Beast, the, the caveman from the past. The I think the skinniest caveman that you'll probably ever see in, in a major motion picture. Um, <laughs> but he wore many, many hats and was heavily involved. And really, aside from... Uh, an actor by the name of uh, Henry Harvey, nobody else was really an actor. Uh, they were all just local friends and, and kind of local personalities to, to one degree or another. Uh, the character of uh, John, who is the archaeologist who flies to the site at the beginning of the film, that's played by uh, Ralph Seeley. John Froome, who was uh, another local TV talent, played uh, Paul who was the uh, archaeologist colleague, Dick Wellsbacher. Uh, I mentioned him. He plays uh, the archaeologist. Maury uh, went on to, I don't think he was a, a Wichita State University professor at this time, but that's what he went on to become uh, well-known for in the community. Webb Smith, he was the hired muscle. He was the guy who gets one of the best on-screen uh, deaths. He gets uh, killed with a shovel. Uh, <laughs> he was a local sportscaster. I remember actually remember watching him on television in the 1970s. But Henry Harvey was really the only other actor. He plays the uh, kind of the, the museum official, uh, the character of Ford, the one who is sitting in the office and drinking and doesn't finish his drink. And you can kind of tell he's got a, a little bit more acting ability, a little but Henry Harvey was was well known in Wichita. Uh, he played at least two characters that I'm familiar with, and I and I know that he played more. There's a a deputy character that he played, a kitty show host. But he played uh, Freddie Fudd, Elmer Fudd's brother, and uh, Freddie Fudd's treehouse <laughs> in the 1970s. I vividly remember him like riding a bicycle and then getting into his treehouse and all the kids were there. And then he would watch uh, Bugs Bunny cartoons. Nothing of that exists online. Unfortunately, I have looked for years, but it, it's, that's lost. It's probably maybe a clip exists somewhere in, in some archive, but I've never seen it. And then is more so well known for playing Santa Claus on Santa's toy shop, which if you grew up in Wichita in the 60s, 70s, 80s, or even the 90s, you know Santa's toy shop and his little sidekick, who was called Cake Man, who was also called Toy Boy, little hand puppet, who would go zooming and zooming around the world every every Christmas season. He, Henry Harvey was amazing. He was Santa Claus for me growing up. And uh, when I heard that he was in this movie, and I remember seeing this movie, and and again, I think eighty or eighty one. And then seeing, you know, Henry Harvey, I think it was even on television, they did like a little opening segment before they played the movie. It was amazing seeing him in the film because it was like, to me, I was like, oh, that, yeah, that's pretty fun. But that's also Santa Claus uh, to a whole generation of people in the Wichita area. So besides Tom Leahy, everyone knows Henry Harvey. Beyond that, 
yeah, I think most people probably have forgotten who everybody else is because it's been so many decades in the past. But Santa's Toy Shop still gets played locally in the Wichita market around Christmas time. And his son actually has played Santa periodically as well. So people still know who Henry Harvey is in, in Wichita and definitely know him for Santa. And Tom Leahy is still remembered as well. Yeah, you uh, know a lot more about him than I do. I All I have is <laughs> what's on the internet movie <laughs> database, and that's about it. So you mentioned the shovel death, and I, I want to talk about that and some of the other blood that we see in here, because this is surprisingly bloody. I mean, It not is, yeah. Over, not offensively so, but... I mean, there's there's a lot of blood in this, and I was shocked the first time I saw this that, well, the shovel thing is just kind of a shocking moment anyway. But even the end, the final shot of the entire film, it's pretty bloody and pretty messy, and I was really surprised by that. Coming, you know, three years before Night of the Living Dead, yeah, it, it predates that, and and yeah, I I remember when I first saw it too. That final scene was what really got me. The shovel death. That kind of throws you, <laughs> because, again, very rare for 1960s. Yeah, I mean, there's other movies that were bloodier and gorier and stuff, but not black and white movies and not movies that were made in this style. To see that that blood at the end of the film was, was kind of shocking. Um, and I wonder if the movie had ever got to be released, if that was something that might have been edited out. Because just the way the movie was, it wasn't geared towards an adult audience. It, it felt almost like a 1950s or early 60s film. Even by 65, it was kind of on the verge of being a little outdated. And then, you know, just three years later with Night of the Living Dead, yeah, it definitely would have been headed towards being outdated in its style. But I wonder, because it is graphic. So I just showed this movie as part of Social Distance Saturday last weekend, and I'm going to show it again this upcoming weekend as well, just because we're talking about it here on the show, and I kind of want to give people an opportunity to see the movie and you know, enjoy themselves on a weekend watching monster movies with their fellow monster kids. So some of you may have already seen the movie by this point or are about to see the movie. That said, this movie is so obscure. We're going to do some spoilers here, and you know, you got the warning at the beginning, so consider yourself warned. Uh, I don't want to talk about a lot of super specific elements, but I think the setup for the story, just to kind of let people know, it's your typical, a couple of archaeologists unearthed something they shouldn't have unearthed. That opening sequence immediately takes me to Creature from the Black Lagoon. Exactly. And I showed this to my wife, Carla, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, which is what spurred you and I to have a conversation about it when I posted it. It's like I introduced her to this film. And that was a comparison that she saw right away, too. An interesting fact is that sequence was filmed at Lake Afton, which was about five minutes away from where I used to live when I was Richard from Wichita. Really? Wow. I would take the kids to, to Lake Afton when I would work second shift. I would take them there over lunch, and uh, we'd play in the playground equipment. It's not a huge lake, but it was uh, it was a destination point for that immediate area. Kind of cool, right? I mean, when you, when you see that in the movie and then know that you're on a movie set. <laughs> I don't know where they filmed it precisely. I tried to see where they might have, but I, I was never able to, to pinpoint exactly where it was filmed. But that in the airport uh, that they show... That was the old Wichita airport. Okay. And that building, it's not an airport now, but the building still stands. It's actually now the, uh, I, I think they, they call it the Aviation Museum. And I've been in that museum. I've actually been in that tower. 
So when you see that tower in the movie, I've been up there because that's you can actually with the right connections there at the at the museum, you can kind of go up to the tower. And uh, I remember when the day I went in there, it was very hot, so I didn't stick around very long up there. There's no air up there, but kind of cool. That building is full of history anyway. But to see it pop up in a movie and to know that you know you're in this you know one random scene in the film, you're you're kind of standing on what was a movie set, so to speak. Uh, it's kind of cool. It's a very creature from the Black Lagoon setup, which resonates with me for anybody who knows me, obvious reasons. <laughs> <laughs> but it does have this dirtier edge to it, uh, grimier edge to it. I think partly because it is a little bit later um, than when Creature was filmed and because of the quality of the print or the transfer we have now. Uh, it does kind of lend itself more towards the grindhousey side of things, but not to the exploitation. I don't know if I'm making much sense here, oh, but it uh, does. Yeah, totally. I a little more dangerous than creature. I mean, if you know, it's not as glamorous, right? Because I don't know. No. I mean, the boat, right? You know, going down into the Black Lagoon is is certainly a lot more glamorous than the uh, 1950s pickup truck coming in from town and the makeshift tent. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I think, yeah, it, it does does have that kind of low budget grindhouse feel to it a little bit. Yeah, without all the the nastier side that, you know, would be in a typical grindhouse flick. It does feel like that. Yeah, totally. So the thing that they unearthed, and we talked a little bit about this caveman that you see running around. It's a caveman. It's a, a creature from the beginning of time. So it's this caveman that's in the middle of America for some reason. And <laughs> <laughs> they, they unearth it. And it doesn't immediately come to life, right? No, no, it doesn't. You know, you started to see what movement, I think, right? And then mm -hmm. the storm and all the electrical activity is what is kind of reviving it, essentially. A la Frankenstein, almost. This, this creature is, is, is feeding off that energy to be revived in, in modern times, as one would, I guess, when getting shocked or, or whatever with electricity. Yeah, that's how it works, right? Yeah, I guess so. It always it works that way in the movies. So And chaos ensues. It always, always chaos ensues. Nothing ever good comes from a reanimated caveman and electricity. Yeah, that's bad combination. Bad combination. And that is the pull quote for this episode. Nothing good ever comes from a reanimated caveman <laughs> and electricity. Perfect. I love it. That That's the t-shirt right there. <laughs> this movie, in, in addition to you know, kind of having a little bit more of an edge to it, some of the characters are just downright unlikable. There's this kind of edge to their relationships with each other. They're kind of angry with each other a lot, it seems like. And I don't know if that was an acting choice, a character choice or what, but there just seems to be like, a, okay, this is the guy that's going to get killed later, I hope, because he's just really being a jerk, you know? I remember Tom when he was presenting it. I mean, there was a talk about the script, and there certainly was a script that, that everyone followed, but there was also a measure of, of ad-libbing that went into it. But you're absolutely right. I mean, Henry Harvey's character of Ford, who's at the beginning of the film, and I think he's commenting mm -hmm. about the archaeologist Maury, about something about how gives him an excuse not to bathe. Not that I've actually ever thought about him needing a bath, but, you know. Yeah, it's, it's just really weird. It's just random comments but like that. That Yeah, his, his Henry Harvey's character seemed, yeah, kind of negative and kind of uh, not mean-spirited, but always on the verge of needing a drink to just kind of chill out a little bit. Yeah. And I think okay. 
And I think he had a drink in pretty much every scene he was in. So that may have been intentional, actually. I don't know. You kind of had to know they were ad-libbing a little bit. None of these people, for the most part, were really professional actors outside of doing like the TV shows, the local TV programming or whatever. So, yeah, knowing that they ad-libbed, I'm sure they kind of had to. And it's not like they had a lot of money to go in and retake a lot of things, right? So they had to use what they ended up with. I would be surprised if there was actually any uh, any reshoots on this. I, any, I have a feeling. Any take twos? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sure there may have been a few, but I think a lot of this was uh, one take and we're done because uh, they were filming this as you know, a lot of low budget films are done today. They were filming this in the evenings and on weekends when uh, everyone else was off work. Right. So everyone had day jobs and that's when they would film this movie. I don't recall how long it took to make this movie. Sometimes in these low budget films, I mean, you can kind of see actors, hairstyles, you know, the hair grows a little bit longer from one scene to the next. So you can kind of get a feel that there's a lack of continuity because they filmed it over a long stretch of time. Sometimes if a movie shuts down production and starts up six months later, there's a definite difference in the way an actor or actress will look. I didn't get that sense in this movie, so I'm not sure that that they took too long to make it. But, uh, you know, again, yeah, evenings and weekends probably didn't have a lot of time for a lot of retakes on this. And and, uh, they, again, probably didn't have... uh, a huge uh, editing crew. They just kind of had to go with what they could get and make the best of it. And for the most part, you know, I think what they, they pull off is uh, just as good as a lot of other low budget films from the time period who probably had bigger budgets and, and even some bigger name actors. So in that regard, with what little they had, they actually pulled off, you know, a, a respectable film. Because a lot of these people were TV personalities and worked in television, I think they had a familiarity with the equipment they were using, the cameras, the locations. I mean, I'm sure a lot of this was shot at the studio. You know, a lot of it was shot in somebody's office after they closed down for the day. So they, they had a familiarity with, with what they were working with, and I think that kind of adds to the, for lack of a better word, credibility of the film. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't just a bunch of kids who, I was going to say, went out in the middle of nowhere and found a cabin and shot a movie. But <laughs> I'm not trying to downplay the evil dead, you know what I mean? I'm just it, it, it feels a little bit more, quote-unquote, grown up than that. It wasn't a Mickey Rooney, uh, Judy Garland production. It was like, you know, hey, we've got a barn. Let's put on a show. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it was one step above that. Um, yeah. And Tom, because he, he had been certainly involved in television since the 50s, he had a feel uh, and had been yeah. playing these movies. He had a feel for, for what he wanted to accomplish. I think it was just a, a lack of having the money to pull off something bigger. And, yeah, as you said, still, even though there was a measure of experience, there was still a lack of experience as well because this was the first film. Which I think if, if you watch Green Hell from the Void, which, again, is only about 10 minutes long— I personally see the growth as a filmmaker comparing this film to that 10-minute little short. You know, again, Green Hell from the Void is not a classic, and it's incomplete. But what you, what you see in that short, and I, again, I don't think that they had much more of a budget. A little bit, maybe, because of there's the spaceship, which that comes off not great in the movie, but... If you look at like the you know, the mask, the the makeup of the alien creature, and just some of the way the shots were done, 
there was a progression, I think, a little bit in just that three-year period of time as a filmmaker. I mean, it's and it's it's a mask. It's clearly a mask that somebody put together, uh, as opposed to the. I'm going to use words that might sound like I'm disparaging this film, and I'm not. But the makeup seems kind of slopped on the caveman in Beast from the Beginning of Time, and and that's fine. I mean, it is what it is, and that's what they did, and that's what they knew how to do. The makeup does seem kind of slopped on there. Not so much so that it looks like Frankenstein from Dracula versus Frankenstein, but, you know, it does have this kind of sloppy look, which once you start throwing a bunch of blood all over it, which is, they do, uh, <laughs> it, it's fine. It looks great. It looks looks just fine. But, yeah, there is a, a level of sophistication that turned up in Green Void from Hell or Green, green Hell from the Void, Green Void from the – that one, the short Yeah, that yeah. one. <laughs> well, I mean, Tom <laughs> – Tom would do his own makeup when he would be the yeah. host. And he, it was it's a ghoul character that you see. Um, but you get a better feel for the makeup as far as like the colors and such if you see any footage from 1990. Um, if you go to archive.org and go to the Basement Silver of Horror, there's a, uh, a special version of this movie in which actually has the nightmare segments as the horror host for the film. Tom Leahy created this sales tape, essentially, of Nightmare. And so he and Rodney, his sidekick, they filmed a wraparound, wraparound segments, an introduction for what would be a regular weekly horror movie without ever mentioning the name of the movie. It was just to give television stations an example because they were trying to syndicate nightmare to other television stations and it never happened outside the wichita market but in that color version you get to see his his ghoul character come to life and the colors and such and it's not hollywood level makeup but it's what you would expect from a local horror host and you know going back to the late 1950s you're dealing with black and white and you know a lesser resolution of the picture a lot of the imperfections would be covered up that level is what you see in this movie is is what you would expect from a local horror host in the 1950s or 60s, maybe a notch above, but not much. And so, yes, the imperfections, even in this poor quality of film, yeah, you can see them there until they get the blood on them and kind of cover up some of the imperfections. Yeah, it's not great, um, but Again, I'm thinking of, of some of those movies. Uh, the producer is escaping me, but what was it uh, in the 1960s? Some of those, like the Invasion of the Saucerman remake that they made for... Oh, Larry for, Buchanan. Yes, Larry Buchanan. Some of his productions, you know, again, he's working with a very, very small budget making these made-for-television films, and there's a lot of imperfections in those, and cheap costumes and stuff like that. This movie comes off in my mind at just as good as those, if not a little bit better, because the black and white covers up some of those imperfections. Whereas a color film, you can see some of the mistakes. In a sharper image, you can see those mistakes better. Slightly softer image and black and white covers up a lot of the imperfections in this film, which I think, again, adds to the character of it. How much about the story do you think listeners should know going into seeing the movie for the first time or, or whatever. I'm like, what, what do you think people need to know about this film? If you were trying to describe it to somebody, I mean, it's a pretty basic film. It's a short movie, mm -hmm. just barely over an hour, barely in over an hour. 
again, we kind of talked about the creature vibe at the beginning. Caveman is found, and Caveman comes back to life and kind of goes on on a uh, killing spree. You, <laughs> you, yeah, I know you and I would love to reveal the the hilarious ending to this film, but I, I'm gonna. I think we need to hold that <laughs> off. But I, I, I challenge the listeners out there when you see this movie, and you, and okay, here's the one spoiler alert. The the caveman most likely doesn't really make it out of the movie alive, although there there's a little something at the end that would suspect that maybe there was a sequel percolating somewhere. <laughs> but but the way the caveman meets his end, I, I've never seen that in another movie. I'm fairly certain we're never gonna see that again in another movie, but it is what it is, and that alone is is worth the journey to get to that final scene. Any <laughs> any 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 highs and lows in the roller coaster ride. There's the payoff, the last minute of the movie when they reveal how it happened, and then you get the little last sequence there of of the caveman. That's worth the price of admission right there, in my opinion. And I watched this movie again, actually, earlier today to get ready for this. I guess in terms of what's happening in the film, it kind of makes sense for one guy to go down that path. But in terms of like when they were creating the story to begin with, how they got on that particular logic train to get to that point, I'd be really interested to know. <laughs> because it's just so, like you said, it's something I've never seen before. And I will never, ever see again unless somebody is doing it intentionally to homage this particular moment. It is just so out of the blue wacky. Well, I think that logic train it fell off the tracks at some point. So, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're off teetering on the edge of the cliff at that point. Uh, I'd love to have been a fly in the wall and that script read or, or the making process is like, you know, all right, after this point, you know, we're going to have the caveman do this and then, hey, let's have this happen. I don't know how you get to that point, because it, it did feel like there's a point or two that maybe was missing from the script. I don't think we're missing any footage. <laughs> I'm just thinking there right. was that, again, that, that leap of logic kind of got thrown out the window. And as I tell Carla, some of these movies, because she's got a scientific brain. And her head explodes a lot of time on some of these is like movies. She loves these old movies. She really does. But there are times that it just it pushes her to her limit. This was a movie that came close to breaking her because she's sitting there saying, yeah, but but, you know, but this and but this, you know, and I said, honey, you just got to go with the flow on it. There's not a lot that makes sense here, but just go with it. And this was one of those movies that I just I knew the experience that she was getting ready for. And I intentionally didn't give her really much of a heads up at all. I just like, you know, <laughs> take my hand and come with me on this journey. You might want to put your seatbelt on because it's going to be a ride. And that's about all I told her. So, <laughs> and you know what? That's, that's awesome. Yeah. Much like the, the final scene in the movie is the payoff. The look on her face 
numerous times during this film and especially at the end that's all i needed that's that's all i needed for for entertainment value that evening it was perfect and i think i speak for most married or at least uh, monster kids with with spouses or, or live-in companions that that's really part of the thrill of showing these movies to people that have never seen them before especially loved ones because you get to see their reaction to what could possibly be one of the most absurd death scenes I've ever seen in a movie. <laughs> yeah, again, I, I'm not sure that yeah. I, I've seen any more absurd. From a classic sci-fi horror flick from this era, yeah, this one takes the cake. Yeah, it puts it right over the top. Rich, we've been talking for quite a while. I want to kind of start wrapping up. But before we do, I want to let listeners know that they can find you a couple of different places. One of them is your podcast with Jeff Owens. Uh, classic horrors club podcast yeah jeff and i've been doing that for over three years now so we're having a lot of fun with it i'm having a lot of fun listening to it (laughs) thank you thank you you know we do one episode a month and we try to go with themes and one of our our best months actually we just did a theme month on lionel atwell i really liked that that was really cool sometimes you have this great idea and you sit down and then you walk away and like, what were we thinking? And that happened last fall when we did a school kids gone bad episode that involved nothing but the night with Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. If that gives you okay. any idea. I, I, no, hey, I love that movie. Okay, <laughs> I will. I will die on that hill. Josh Kennedy will join me. We both really like that movie. Come on now. Then, you know then that episode <laughs> might be more your cup of tea. I don't know. I don't hate that movie, but it was one of those things where I had this idea and it just, by the end of it, it was like, okay, that didn't quite pay off. So Lion Latwell was the other end of the extreme. Uh, we had a lot of fun with that. We got a lot of good response. It was something kind of in the same format we do. It was, I think it was fun talking about somebody that is not really often talked about. You always hear about Lion Latwell but you don't hear about Lionel Atwell. And so that was a lot of fun. It was really kind of eye-opening, some of the material that you brought up and the way it was. It was just really, really fun. And listeners, go check that out. If you haven't listened to Rich and Jeff's podcast, first of all, Monster Kid Radio Seal of Approval, boom, right there. It's a great show. Even if Rich and Jeff were not my friends, I'd say that. You know, they're (laughs) part of the Monster Conservancy, so of course I'm going to support them, but... I mean, they, they bring the quality. You know, they bring some really good stuff to it. And the Lionel Atwell, like you said, we know he's a genre guy. He did a lot of stuff in the genres that we love, but, you know, we don't talk enough about him. So I thought that was pretty cool. Oh, thank you. I, I, we want to do more like that in the future. We, we've got some interesting ideas. We've got a format. We want to tweak some things up. We've got uh, Sherlock Holmes coming up in May, and that was actually – we were going to do that in April, and, and that was Carla's idea. She was like, how about Sherlock Holmes? Because – you know, it's her birthday month. And she said, do I get to pick an episode? So I was like, <laughs> nice, nice. So I said, throw me some ideas. And I said, Sherlock Holmes, I think we can do that. You know, we're doing the house of fear, which is kind of like an old dark house movie. Yeah. If you've ever seen that Basil Rathbone film, we're doing yep. Hound of the Baskervilles with, with Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Oh, giving a little man. bit. Of, there you yeah. Go. And then we're doing a study in terror, which is Sherlock Holmes versus Jack the Ripper. So we're going to have a lot of fun with that when we do that. And and then uh, we've got something fun percolating for the summer months that we'll announce on our next episode in May, which I think will be fun. But I think, yeah, we're going to do something similar to Lionel Atwell. We've talked about that. We're really pleased with how that and the response we got from it. So 
hopefully we'll we'll do more things like that with some lesser known or less talked about actors. But besides the the podcast, I've got two blogs. Still have monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. Anything that I do monster related ends up there. And then everything I do, including the monster stuff, is on Kansas City Cinephile, which is KC cinephile.com sometimes i'll i'll go with non-genre films last summer for example carla and i did all of the marx brothers movies and uh we have something similar planned for this summer we're starting in may and going to go through the week that summer ends in september we are doing the films of laurel and hardy it's a nice balance right to have that humor and then the monster movies so we had a lot of fun with that and then i also talk about old-time radio I've had huge responses to that. I knew that there was a lot of crossover love. And with Lionel Atwell Month, I tried tying it in because I didn't know that Lionel Atwell actually did some uh, appearances on old-time radio. So that was something new that I learned. It was fun sharing those. So yeah, I got the blogs and I, and I do a few other podcasts. I still do some stuff for Dread Media, Desmond Reddick's podcast. I don't watch as many contemporary films, so I, I'm not on there as much. It seems like when I am on there, then I'm on there for like two or three weeks in a row. I do a clump of stuff for him. But Des is great. He's like, hey, whatever you got, send my way and, and no pressure. So you can hear me over there. And then I'm also heard every month on the uh, Memoverse Monthly Audio Cast uh, with Mr. Mim. Uh, I have the Kansas City Crypt that I uh, basically, again, I, I kind of just do whatever I want and uh I try to tie it in sometimes with stuff that's going on maybe on, on the blog or, or maybe something that like an upcoming film release. And so this last month I did Monster on the Campus. I actually watched that the same night that I introduced Carla to the Beast from the beginning of time. So there, there's a double feature. Yes. God love her. She made it through that night. Uh, and we started off the evening with The Incredible uh, Shrinking Man, which I watched for okay. Yeah, that's, that's a nice prestige, you know. So we started off with that and then uh, worked our way to Monster on the Campus and then Beast. So it was a, it was a trilogy that night. Unfortunately, none of the movies really end happy, which is a, uh, I mean, everyone ends up dead or, or shrunk or, you know, things aren't looking too good. And Carla loves her happy endings. And so that's the one thing about old movies. She always loves, you know, the, the random guy meets girl and, and 75 minutes later they're getting married and having kids kind of endings. And she kind of kept looking at me after every movie and was like, that wasn't happy. That wasn't, we get to the, you know, this last movie and she's like, okay, just three movies in a row and, and, and none of them end happy. And I'm like, well, people survived at the end of the beast in the beginning of time. <laughs> The guy still got the girl. I mean, you know. Not everybody died. Not everybody, you know. <laughs> I think it's so cute the way you, like, plan ahead and know what you're doing in a month or two. That's, that's just adorable. I, <laughs> because I am nowhere that organized. <laughs> of course, there are links in the show notes to everything Rich mentioned. At least there better be. You need to be listening to the Classic Horrors Club podcast. It's a good time. Rich and Jeff bring a different perspective to these things that we love so much. And they go outside of the window that we typically stay in here on Monster Kid Radio, at least when I'm not feeling a little extra spicy and decide to bend the rules just because I'm tired. Anyway, just check out their podcast. I highly recommend it. And I meant it when I said Monster Kid Radio seal of approval. Also, big shout out to Rich and his wife, Carla. April 14th was their wedding anniversary. So happy anniversary, you crazy kids. 
blood of the ever-living, the ever-evil. Blood from the mummy's tomb. the dead, dead past come powers too terrifying, too strange to be believed. You know who I am? Yes. And you're afraid, aren't you? Who is she, wearing the mummy's face? Is she one of us, enjoying our kind of life? Or is she the ever-living, the ever-evil? <coughs> from the mummy's tomb rated pg right now michael drake hasn't a care in the world he's off on a camping holiday in california with his wife and two children plus two dogs and a litter of puppies what drake doesn't know is that there are skeletons in his family closet and the bones are about to start rattling with a vengeance you see his name isn't really drake in the old country it's pronounced Dracula. I'll tell you one thing, if what you say is true, I'm gonna make a lot of money. Oh? Yeah, I'm gonna sue all those people who've been making Dracula pictures without my permission. A very funny joke, Mr. Drake. But that is exactly the point. You are the only direct descendant. Don't forget, he wants your blood. We must prepare. In the daytime, we will look for him. At night, he looks for you. What's happening? Destroy him. Now! Summoned by the living dead, they come in the night, thirsting for human blood. Led by the most terrifying creature that ever walked the earth. Sultan, Hound of Dracula. Now there's a nice doggy, but before you pet it, take a good look. It might be a friend of Zoltan, Hound of Dracula. Before we wrap up, remember a couple weeks back when I put the call out, if you are a Monster Kid creator, if you have a business that Monster Kids might be interested in and you'd like a little extra support or just maybe have me boost the signal a little bit to drop me a line? Well, Jim Moore, who has been on the show before, we talked about The Manster last year, which... And that movie has stuck with me, actually. It's a great film. Anyway, Jim is a sculptor, and he would normally be going to all these different conventions to sell his wares, but because of everything going on right now with the Corona apocalypse, he's not been able to hit up all the different conventions. So right now, the only place for you to be able to pick up any of his work is through his Etsy shop. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. It's under more monsters and more is spelled M O O R E. Go check it out. You'll know you're in the right place. If you pull up the more monsters Etsy page and you see four creatures from the black lagoon staring back at you. Which, of course, means I love hanging out here. His stuff's really cool. It makes a bunch of monster-themed tiki mugs, as well as a few other things. Uh, I'm really a big fan of the Zardoz tiki mug that he's got there. That's just really cool. But yeah, check out his stuff. 
Jim Moore, thank you for sending me your link. If you are a Monster Kid creator, crafter, or a business that you think Monster Kids might be interested in, please drop me a line at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or call and leave me a voicemail or heck, put together a 30 or 60 second ad and I'll drop you into rotation because I really want to try to help keep people afloat. Businesses are taking a huge hit, especially the smaller businesses run by people like us are taking a huge hit right now. So if there's anything I can do to help, I want to be there. You know, I want to do it. My platform is yours. You know, one thing that I sometimes hear from people is that they get jealous about all the different events that happen in my neck of the woods up here in the Pacific Northwest. Portland's got a ton of movie theaters showing older movies that there are so many conventions and events in my area that I can go to. And while I do try to talk about them here on the show and promote them as much as I can and kind of share the experience with you, I know it's not exactly the same. However, Again, looking for that silver lining. One thing that the local drive-in movie theater is doing is hosting online virtual drive-in nights. Or specifically, they're calling it the Don't Drive, Stay In night. And this is actually coordinated and run by friend of the show, Jeff Pollier. He's been on the show quite a bit. It's been a long time, though. I need to have him back on. But yeah, Jeff runs these every Saturday night. And you can learn more about it by going to the 99W Drive-In's Facebook page, which is just facebook.com slash 99W drive in. The way it works is they set up a discord chat room and they have a live chat going while you're watching the movie at home on your own device. And this upcoming weekend, it's one heck of a double feature. They're going to be showing the love bug and tremors are asking you to show the love bug and tremors to yourself. And then because it's all timed at the same time, there's a movie watch party thing going on in the discord. It just seems really cool. I did talk to Jeff a little bit about this and there is a possibility that monster kid radio may be doing a crossover with the don't drive stay in because Jeff plans to continue this through future Saturdays as well. And of course, Saturday is the day of social distance Saturday here on monster kid radio. Let's talk a little bit about that this weekend at twitch.tv slash monster kid radio link in the show notes, of course is the ghost of social distance Saturday. This will be the fourth social distance Saturday that we've done the fifth streaming event because we did do that one with Gary Khan, the virtual convention a few weeks back and I have not run out of movies to show you guys and gals. I'm really excited to bring some cool stuff to you again this time around. Man, it's going to be a good one. I don't want to tell you everything that's coming. I actually ran a poll online asking people if they want to know exactly what's coming, if they want to be teased a little bit about what's going to be shown, or just to be caught completely by surprise. And so far, most people seem to agree that they don't want to know exactly what I'm going to play but they would like to have a good idea of what's coming up. Maybe a few hints here and there. I know I've already kind of spoiled one of the things I'm going to be showing the picture of Dorian Gray, the 1961 telemovie. I'm also going to be showing the beast from the beginning of time again. And this time around the beast from the beginning of time will be shown earlier in the day. I know one issue last week was that, People on the East Coast weren't able to stay up as late as some of us over here on the West Coast because the time zone thing, whatever, and they weren't able to catch it. So I am showing it pretty early in the run. It's not the first thing I'm going to show, but it's pretty darn close. I can also tell you that we're going to get a little luchador action, and this is actually going to be a special presentation 
of a Santo film. You'll have to tune in to the Ghosts of Social Distance Saturday to learn a little bit more about what that's going to be. We're going to have an episode of One Step Beyond and Josh Kennedy. We're going to have another one of his productions as well. You know, I love doing Social Distance Saturday. I would run this all day long if I could. But, you know, there's this whole sleep thing. And like I said, there's the time zone issue and all that. But for as long as I run it, I'm always having a good time, and I know you guys and gals are chatting it up and making it part of the fun for everybody. As before, 11 a.m.-ish is when the pre-show will start, and this is Pacific Time. And I can tell you now that the pre-show will feature a return of a documentary that I tried to show a couple weeks ago, but we had sound issues and there was absolutely no sound whatsoever. Well, that's going to be shown this time around with sound. Go figure. And then the actual event, the stream, the screening, whatever you want to call it, starts in earnest around noon Pacific time. And it will go till at least nine or 10 o'clock at night Pacific time. And sometimes I even put something on as like an after show. So check out twitch.tv slash monster kid radio. I appreciate everybody's support. Those of you who actually subscribe to that Twitch stream through Twitch, actually paying to become a subscriber. And those of you who have supported me through the coffee website, that's ko-fi.com while I'm doing that as well, kind of tipping me a little bit. I appreciate that as well. It really helps me out quite a bit. You have no idea how much it means to me to know that you guys and gals got my back that way. MonsterKidRadio.net is where you're going to find everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio. Links to everything that we've talked about here on the show, the YouTube video from the Destroyers, and an announcement about what's coming up next week on the podcast. Now, as of right now, I don't have anything in the can, but on Sunday, I do plan on recording with friend of the show, Rod Barnett. And we're going to be talking about the second of the Gamma One films. That would be 1966's The War of the Planets. You can't let them. Get out of there first. Blast them now. Drop now. You've got to do it. Dad, listen to me. From the remotest reaches of the cosmos, an unknown force is overpowering mankind. I can't get enough buildup. We'll never get off the ground. Countdown. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three. Two, one, fire. The greatest threat in outer space, the war of the planets. You can't stop them. Lazar's no good. You can't stop them. They're lights, but they've got shape. They're more than lights. When you have them within, you experience a power of mind beyond all comprehension. Working feverishly, courageous astronauts vainly search for a transparent enemy that has overtaken their space station, paralyzing every form of life and motion. And prepare for immediate evacuation of all space installations. All the forces on Earth have been mobilized to combat this invisible, supernatural, deadly power that is crippling man's progress in space. No signs of rigor mortis. No signs of decay or corruption. Man's willpower, his will to live, is being crushed. It's a battle of wits against a subtle enemy for which there is no defense. It was three and a half years ago when I had Rod on the show to talk about the first film, Wild Wild Planet. That was back in September of 2016, episode 286. And ever since then, 
I've always wanted to have Rod come back to go through the rest of the Gamma 1 films. It's finally going to happen. And was kind of inspired by a post that Rod made on one of his websites about the films. And we'll talk about that with him next week on the show. So come back for that. Plus, of course, Steve Durek and I will reveal the winner of this year's Monster Movie Madness Tournament and reflect on that a little bit. I'm really curious to see how that turns out. Go Giant Claw. Any feedback you send my way. And then, of course, Kenny with the look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. I want to get this episode out, so I'm going to wrap up and remind you that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution on commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Reaper Madness Quarantine Rock. That belongs to the surf band The Delstroyers. You can find them online at thedelstroyers.bandcamp.com or just check out the YouTube video. That I'll make sure there's a link to in the show notes. My name is Derek M. Cook, and I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao.